Well, it certainly is a privilege to be here. You know, for years, uh, Kat, Catherine, we called her, was uh, known as uh, uh, the pastor's daughter. So it's a real privilege to be in a place where I'm known as Cat Wheeldryer's father. And uh, so uh, it's just great to be here. As, uh, as Grant said, I have been uh, pastoring in uh, Birmingham for almost 30 years, 28 years, uh, uh, almost exactly now. And you've probably read or heard of the difficulties pastors have had in uh, these last uh, couple of years. Uh, we seem to be, in some ways, uh, victimized by a perfect storm of three factors, the pandemic, which uh, for a while caused us not to be able to meet together. And then when we did, uh, no matter what decisions were made about such things as masking and social distancing, one group was angry at you and another group approved of you. Uh, then on top of that, we had the, um, the political divisiveness of our nation that uh, tragically has entered churches uh, in significant ways. And that was true in our church uh, as well. And then on top of uh, all of that, we've had the uh, issues of uh, racial justice uh, in the wake of uh, the uh, death of George Floyd uh, under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer. And uh, I uh, attempted to help our congregation uh, deal with these things in a biblical manner, particularly after the George Floyd murder. And uh, I wrote a, uh, two letters that, quite honestly, I thought were just plain vanilla Christianity, uh, trying to instruct our people on how we should think about these things biblically. I was blindsided by the reactions that, that those two letters uh, garnered in our uh, congregation. You know, I've been there 26 years by that time, and... Uh, thought that uh, everybody was just completely pleased with everything I would say and uh, would receive God's word uh, from me, uh, especially things that I considered to be just patently obvious from the Bible. Uh, for example, one of the things I encouraged our people with, uh, our, our congregation is largely middle and upper middle class, almost 100% white, not completely, but nearly and uh, so I just made a simple point that, uh, you know, we've been given certain privileges in our culture. We're fairly well-to-do, uh, well-educated, uh, part of the majority culture. And biblically, uh, what God asks of us is to uh, use any power we may have been given to help those without power. Plain vanilla Christianity, right? <laughs> well the pushback I received, albeit from a minority in the congregation, was extreme and severe. I was uh, accused of uh, being a Marxist. <laughs> uh, I was uh, accused of being soft on biblical morality. Uh, uh, most seriously, I was accused of no longer preaching the gospel. Uh, none of those accusations were presented with any evidence whatsoever and uh, it was it was a difficult time I was the victim of a great deal of slander 
in the congregation, uh, resulting in people leaving. And most tragically, I've discovered in talking with other pastors that my experiences have not been unique. They've actually been rather common in the last two years. So what I want to talk to you about today, though, uh, are some things that God has taught me through the book of Philippians, specifically Philippians chapter 1, where we encounter an apostle who's also experiencing some rather difficult and challenging times. Uh, You may be aware of the fact that uh, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians from prison. He's toward the end of his ministry, much closer to the end than to the beginning, uh, and he is there in prison because he has appealed his case to Caesar, and he's awaiting his hearing before Caesar. And I just want to draw your attention to three things that have encouraged me greatly, and I trust may encourage you too, when you've been blindsided by something unwanted, unexpected, and difficult in your life. Here's the first one that uh, we, le- we learned from this passage and that I- I've been learning more and more, even though I knew this all along, kind of learn things at deeper levels when you go through these sufferings. It's that ministry from weakness is normal. Here's Paul in prison. And uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's a, a, a very fruitful apostle. He's one of the most arguably fruitful missionaries the church has ever had. And he longs to go all the way west to Spain. But he can't do that because he's chained to the imperial guard. But here's what Paul writes happens. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard was uh, 9,000 elite soldiers tasked with guarding Rome and particularly the emperor. And uh, they would have uh, guarded Paul in shifts. What do you think they talked about? You know, guards would obviously want to know, um, why are you here? And uh, Paul would explain to them, well, I'm here because I'm, um, I'm preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus uh, suffered and died. He was executed on a cross. And I'm his follower. And I, uh, I experienced the same things because I'm joined into union with Christ, I, I've, I'm called to suffer too. But I want you to know the sufferings of Jesus were God's plan. And he would go on to explain about substitutionary death of Christ, the very things he explained in the book of Romans. And uh, he had a parade of guards who came and heard that message. And then uh, Paul adds those wonderful words, and to the rest, to the imperial guard, and to the rest. He means the household of Caesar. What what an amazing thing this is. This is an audience that Paul would never have had access to otherwise. He is preaching to the very center of power in this day. Uh, He's not only preaching at a place that's the center of power, it's the center of idolatry of this day. They worshiped 
the emperor. They worshiped Caesar. That's what they engaged in this day. And here is Paul declaring, actually, I know Caesar's Lord and his name is Jesus. And he alone is to be worshiped. You see, what we see here is God's pattern for us of winning through losing. You know, so often I think today, Christians are afraid of losing. We're afraid of losing the culture wars. We, we don't need to fear that. We don't, we don't try to lose, but we need not fear these things. What we need to fear is unfaithfulness. And how often is it the case that God's people end up winning through losing? Isn't that the way of Jesus? He lost at the cross, right? <laughs> Satan won. But who actually did win? Uh, God won, as he always does and always will. The gospel advances through our weakness. Here's the second thing I learned here in uh, Philippians 1 that encouraged me. It's to get out of my little story and get into the big story. So I, I see that here in uh, beginning in verse 15 where Paul writes of... Um, some internal turmoil in the church in Rome. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, listen to this, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So here are those who are opposing Paul, and they're not enemies of the gospel. They're fellow believers. <laughs> uh, and apparently they're preaching the true gospel. These are not the Judaizers who preach that you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian because Paul said that's a different gospel, and he rejected that entirely. This is, this is people, these are, these are men preaching the true gospel. And their motives, however, are not pure. They're doing it out of... Rivalry. Apparently they believed, we don't know anything about these people other than what Paul tells us here, but apparently they believed that preaching the gospel was a competitive sport and their goal was to win and particularly their opponent they saw was Paul. They were envious of his success and they thought he would be just like them and if they were successful in preaching the gospel and won more converts than Paul, that somehow they're going to get back at Paul by doing that. His wings are clipped now. He's in prison. This is their opportunity. So they preach and apparently they win converts, but they're disappointed in Paul's reaction undoubtedly. <laughs> they assumed he was like them, but instead Paul said, I rejoice. I rejoice. Even though you're preaching out of bad motives because you hate me and want to bring me down, I rejoice because you're winning, and in your winning, Jesus is winning. You see, what we see here is, is Paul is able to get out of his little story. He's not absorbed with, oh, what's happening to me here? He's all about what's happening to Jesus, what's happening to the gospel. He's in the big story there. He keeps, he keeps the big picture in mind. And um, there's that one of my favorite hymns. 
uh, is a father I know that all my life. And uh, one of the lines in that hymn says that we are to be content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. Uh, pictures this very well, doesn't it? The big story of God being at work, restoring paradise, bringing his children home again. That's what Paul was all about. And so that's encouraged me, you know. Brad, so what? Doesn't matter what happens to you. What matters is what happens to the gospel. That's what Paul shows me here. Then here's the third thing. It's uh, the death of the victim mentality. So at the end of verse 18, um, Paul turns from the past to the future. And he says he will rejoice. And then he goes into this discussion, kind of an internal discussion. Should I choose to live or to die? And uh, he has that famous phrase, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he engages in this internal dialogue, which should I choose to live or to die? As I read that, I was like scratching my head. Paul, is, is this your choice? Uh, isn't it the emperor's choice? Whether you live or die, you're going to stand before him and he's going to hear your case. And if he uh, releases you, you, you go free. If he condemns you, you're executed. How can you say, which shall I choose? It's not your choice, is it, Paul? And I think the answer to that question is that Paul deliberately rejects the identity of being a victim. He holds on to the dignity of human agency for himself. He realized that because of the sovereignty of God, I always have a choice. And I'm called to make a choice, not to dwell in the despair of, oh, I'm just the victim of all these powerful forces arrayed against me, but to make a choice. And undoubtedly, his choice was simply, what should I be asking God for in prayer? Because uh, it may be Caesar's choice, but Paul would reason to himself, I know the one I have a friend who is actually Caesar's Lord and can turn Caesar's heart. And uh, I can pray to my friend and he will, he will answer my prayers according to his good will. And so what we see here is, is Paul rejecting the role of victim. I read uh, recently the story of uh, Bishop Alfred Stanway, uh, D.A. Carson in one of his book uh, tells Stanway's, uh, part of Stanway's story. He was an Anglican missionary in East Africa whom God used to plant countless churches across Tanzania, several hundred churches. In his retirement, he actually uh, helped found a seminary in Pennsylvania. And uh, D.A. Carson mentions a visit he had with Bishop Stanway in his native Australia 
when Bishop Stanway was suffering from the latter stages of Parkinson's disease, he could no longer walk, he could uh, not speak anymore, he could barely write, which was the way he communicated. Here's Carson's description of the visit. He communicated by writing on a pad of paper. More precisely, he could no longer write, but printed his answers in scarcely legible block letters. By the time I got to know him a little, I felt emboldened to ask him how he was coping with his crippling disease. He had been so active and productive throughout his life. How was he handling being shunted aside? He had to print his answer on that pad of paper three times before I could read it. Here's what it said. There is no future in frustration. There is no future in frustration. He specifically rejected, like Paul, the role of victim. In a group this size, I would imagine that there are among us people who are battling the black clouds of despair. And my message to you isn't, well, just buck up. Things could be worse. Look at Bishop Stanway. Look at the Apostle Paul. That's not God's message. God's message to you and to all of us during times when we might be battling despair because such times come to all of us at one time or another. The message is Bishop Stanway's God, the Apostle Paul's God is your God. And there's always a path forward. Can you hear me in that? There is always a path forward for you. As long as you are breathing, God has a good plan for you. Even in the midst of the darkest clouds that life may bring to you, there is always a good plan God has for you. Ask God for that. Ask God. One of the questions I frequently encourage people to ask is is a very simple one. What step might God be calling you to take right now? I think that's what Paul was doing here in prison, confined as he was, seemingly without options. He said, no, there's always an option. There's always a way forward. What should I choose? Interestingly, what he ends up choosing is against his own best (laughs) self-interest. He says, you know, it'd be better if I go to be with Jesus. That would be gain. That would be far better, he says. But uh, he reasons there. In verses 24 and 25, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I think in the next chapter, Paul's going to say to the Philippians that each one should look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He's doing precisely that. He's modeling that right now. Let me close with this. There's a... um, There's a place in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where uh, the hobbits are suffering under those many dark clouds that they labored under. And they're battling despair themselves. And at just that moment, 
it's, it's the night sky, the clouds part and they see the vastness and the bigness of God's world and hope is rekindled in their hearts. And I can report to you that God is helping me, encouraging me along those same lines. And I hope he will do so for you as well. As you face uh, challenges in your life, as you battle despair that uh, might be encroaching upon your psyche, upon your heart, um, there's always hope in God. God will win. We don't need to be afraid of losing. God will always win through weakness. There's a big story that we're privileged to be a part of and we're never victims. Even though we might be victimized by others, we never need to be identified as victims. May God help us all in this. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh God, thank you um, for our Lord Jesus. Thank you that uh, he has re-identified for us what it means to win and lose. (laughs) And uh, the one who lost actually won everything. And so we pray, oh God, that we would follow him into this big story of what you're doing in our lives, what you're doing through uh, the church, through your people, that uh, victory is assured. And Father, I would pray specifically for any this morning who may be battling the black clouds of despair in their lives. Would you, by the power of your spirit, bring forth hope deep in their hearts the hope of the gospel, the hope of your promises for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.